On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Fish's Field of Crows. And welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we continue in the Fish Catalog with Field of Crows. is a really really interesting fish album now i've been actually listening to this album for literally months at this point various amounts over that time but i've been listening to it for a long time my guess is you two have not been listening to it for nearly as long i couldn't believe how familiar i was when i went back and listened Really? I, I think we debated doing this episode like four times a week and we like boned up each time and we <laughs> really went in deep. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a decent listen. It, it's good production. And I, I, I think it kind of goes down easy if, if, if you're not being too critical of it. So, yeah, you know, I, so when I started preparing for the the fish episode, and if I wasn't so lazy, I would actually look into our tech stream and figure out exactly when I did that. But a long, long time ago, I I was just, you know, going willy-nilly through the fish catalog. And I remember listening to this. I have no recollection of when I bought this album originally. I have no recollection of listening to it, listening to it, liking it, not liking it, nothing. So when I put it in earlier this year, it was almost like a brand new record. Oh, what is this? And the first couple listens, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm kind of on board with that. And then by the time I got back to it the second time, I was like, boy, this really isn't great. Mm. And, and I was really, really hesitant. And the But the more time I spend with it, I, I've come to this conclusion with regards to Field of Crows. I I describe this album to me personally as confounding. In some ways, it has the Tormato effect because there are certain aspects of it that I find exceptionally grating that we will get to. Hmm. But Agreed. there's actually a lot of good here. And, and Ken, you mentioned the production. I mean, in in the last Fish episode... Fellini days, first time you listen to that record, it sounds like shit. But as you get into it and you learn to sort of appreciate the songs for what they are, it, it, it kind of grew in stature. Well, that was a little strong. I don't never thought it sounded like it was just very artful and unique in its production. OK, yeah, that's a much nicer way to say it. Yeah, that's but, not what I had in my notes um, about the production. But I, I, I will say this, like Field of Crows, the two challenges for me with this record. One was that the hiatus, if you will, I listened to a lot of other things that yeah. you know, I steered way away from 
from fish in general and in a lot of the things that we've been listening to and been listening to other things. But number two, the other thing that was really challenging for, with this album for me is that it comes right after Fellini Days and I fucking love that album. And I've been listening to that anytime, anytime I exercise or do anything where I'm like, oh, I need to listen to fish. I go right to Fellini Days. And it really, that, it's funny that you say that because I think the production is much better on Field of Crows, but I think the album itself pales in comparison to, and, and, and uh, Rain Gods with Zippos too. I mean, those yeah. two, I think I mentioned, I, I was waiting for, for Fish to let me down and I think he finally did. Um, <laughs> and the other way I describe this album with my tongue firmly in my cheek, and, and I find it interesting, I, I have been mentally referring to this album as Fish Goes Shit Kicking. <laughs> oh, that is so not fair. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he does his honky tonk, his worst honky tonk. I mean, I mean, let's talk about what really signifies the composition here. Fish is a poet, very good poet. He's not a musician. And he has relied in the past on folks like Stephen Wilson. He's relied on, um, help me out here. Uh, uh, John Wesley. John yes, Robin John Bolt. Wesley. And Robin Bolt. And this is Bruce Watson, who is an unknown quantity. And I'm, Let's I'm not hoping- forget Rick Astley also. Yeah. And Rick Astley. That's true. All right, right. Was he? Did he appear on Fellini Days briefly? On he co-wrote one of the songs on Fellini yeah. Days. Right, yeah. right, right. So at least, at least, Fish is resourceful. Um, I did the math, and in 2004, when Field of Crows came out, he was 46. And this is time to make the donuts, Fish. He's he's like going to work. He's just plugging away. He's he's kind of got a formula. He just oh, give me another guitarist, and he's just like he can stamp him out, man. He's a factory. He glazed. Yeah. Plane, he's got it all. It's you know, it's it's funny you say that because you know after the experience of the remastered super duper booklet for Fellini Days, I went back and I bought as many fish remasters as I could, and so Fellini Days provided exceptional insight into how the songs came about and everything that was going on. Field of Crows does not necessarily provide that same level of detail for the songs themselves, but it does speak to all of the issues that Fish had making this record. Because essentially, at the end of Fellini Days, and if you remember that, that whole narrative, at the end of Fellini Days, his wife had left him, moved to Berlin, Right. He had sold the house, moved into the studio and had no equipment in it. Mm -hmm. So this the 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 tale that kind of goes around 2001, 2002, 2003 when this album was being put together sort of closes that chapter in a lot of ways. Fish was continually working trying to dig himself out of debt. 
He was flirting with this acting career that we've heard about. And at the end of, of the Fellini Days tour, his band basically disintegrated and he had to rebuild it. And throughout the process of writing and recording this record, he seems by his own account to have had a very difficult time keeping a group together. It's kind of amazing when you think about, you know, whatever whatever I have to say about the the types of music that, you know, they have decided to put on this record. I have to admit that the the players who are delivering this do so very well. And and I think that ultimately is is a reflection of the fact that Fish apparently made a conscious decision to take the band out on the road and perform a lot of the new songs before they went into the studio. Mm. And, and I think that's part of what we're, what we're seeing here, but it, it's, it's an interesting sort of tale that, that fish has to tell around this, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not a happy tale at all. None of them and, seem to um, be, <laughs> you know, each one of these remasters that I read, it's, it's, there's a recurring theme, you know, lots of debt, yeah, trying to figure out how to pay the bills while I record an album. But this one, he did this on his own label, right, Joe? And did like a pre-sale, right, kind of thing? He didn't pre-sale this one. Okay. Um, he specifically mentioned that it would have been good for him to have pre-sale, pre-sold it. But with the, the sort of starts and stops of, of recording, not recording, mm -hmm. and personnel changes, that he just didn't feel that that was something that he could do. Wow. I mean, maybe Scotland's a small country, but but what does Fish have to do with big country? Well, uh, Bruce huh. Watson is a guitarist in big country. And and there you go. Um, the drummer. Brzezinski? Bris, yeah, 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 yeah. He played with everybody, including the cult, I think. An ultra well, box. Rick Astley. Yep. Yeah, but but he was also in Big Country. He was, yep. And and he played on Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors and the subsequent tour. What the issue that, you know, while we're talking about the drummer, the issue that they had was they they were working with another drummer. He he apparently was good live, but when they went into the studio, he just wasn't cutting it. And I guess Fish had some experience on this before and basically told the guy, "Look, I'm going to get Brzezicki in here to to record the album, but you can stay on for the tour. And the guy said, screw you. Wow. So it, so the, the, the drumming switch came in really, really late in the game. But interesting. And it, the other interesting thing, and I think we talked about it a little bit with Fellini days, he was doing these these SAS shows, these uh, 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 these shows for the armed services. And, you know, they had a, a an extended sort of musical family for that. So, so the two guys who end up playing horns on here, um, Richard Sidwell and Steve Hamilton, they're people that fish met through that, that group and that organization. And so, you know, the, the horns again can sort of seem out of place a little bit, but I think it, it, it comes across in the story as fish tells it as, you know, he really liked working with these guys and, you know, wanted them on this record. And so that's why they're there. But, but Ken, maybe, uh, maybe you want to give us a little bit of context 
for Field of Crows. And uh, <laughs> I want to address the marbles in the room. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> the big giant marble in the middle of the room. Do you say that um, in 2004, if you were going to compete uh, with your Marillion collection, your fish collection, you'd have Field of Crows up against marbles. And, you know, God damn, there's just no comparison. There really isn't. No. So how so how did we get there? Um in, in, in 2001, uh we had an arachnophobia, but this is such a weird time. Tool lateralis, 2001, Asia R and Muse Origin of Symmetry. Uh, yes, as magnification in 2001. We got some flower kings, some transatlantic. And uh, it just kind of blows me away that everything kind of changed. If it, uh, I, I think of uh, Mars Volta when I think of the early 2000s. Noise became a thing. And, and, and you know, I, I don't know, Prague, noise, Prague became a thing. It was kind of scary when I was a sound guy doing sound for these kids. And it was like, well, I, I see a little bit of Prague in there. <laughs> um, Coheed and Cambria was big, you know, Dream Theater came into their own real strong. Rush had vapor trails. Oof. Um, you all know how I feel about that. What a weird time. Alice Box Beard, you know, happening. Uh, Peter Gabriel did up 2002. Hey, we got Porcupine Tree going in absentia. More Flower Kings, Opeth. So <laughs> Rick Wakeman rejoined. Yes, that was 2002. 2003 is, is also a weird one. God, Saga's active, Opeth active, Spock's beard still, still active. Iron Maiden to Dance of Death, 2003. Mm. Muse, Absolution. Oh, Neil Morris doing his solo career with Testimony. Just really weird sense of prog. Uh, 2004. Oh, Tiny Fish. Uh, we are fans of uh, Simon on this show, and mm -hmm. I have to edit an episode with his voice. Oh, yeah, yeah, 2004. We've got some uh, Blackfield happening. Self, the uh, self-titled Blackfield nice. album. Nice. Blackfield, the the uh, self-titled debut album. Terrible yeah. to run with, by the way. Don't ever do that. <laughs> okay, I won't do that. Porcupine Tree or Zawa. Yeah, and then Marbles comes out in uh, April. Oh, cool. They have Dave Bainbridge, Vale of Gossamer in here. It's good to see him uh, making the timeline of progressive rock on Wikipedia. I think it's interesting on my list that I'm looking at. I don't see Fish appearing at all in any of this, but Arena had an, uh, an album in 2003. There is, I, I want to say IQ had an album also mostly Autumn and Pineapple Thief also released. So, um, oh, yeah, you know, those are those are a couple of bands that, I, you know, personally, I've only just been getting into. It's it's interesting to see them, you know, permeating the, the world in the early 2000s. That is interesting. So if we go to the particulars for the album it, and it's interesting, the wikis give two release dates. December 2003 for mail order and May of 2004 for retail. That's a pretty big difference. 
Um, it was released on the Chocolate Frog Records and or with Snapper Music and produced by Elliot Ness. I don't think he exists. There's no link to this bastard. <laughs> Elliot Ness. He's done a lot. He's done a lot. He has? Really? Personnel are Fish on lead vocals, Bruce Watson on guitars and Ebo, Frank Usher on guitars and slide guitar, Steve Vancis on bass, Mark Brzezicki on drums and percussion, Tony Turrell on keyboards, Dave Has Haswell on percussions, uh, Danny Gillian, Gillen on backing vocals, Richard Sidwell and Steve Hamilton on uh, trumpet and flugelhorn and saxophone, respectively, and Irvin Duguid Clavinet on six. Now, he was actually the original keyboardist in the band at the time, and I guess he had recorded a bunch of the parts, and when the previous drummer, <laughs> with whom he, Irvin was very good friends, uh, was asked to leave, uh, Irvin apparently took great exception to this and ended up leaving as well. So, so both uh, the drummer and Tony Turrell, the keyboardist, were brought in very late in the uh, in the proceedings. And the only part of Irvin's that they kept was the clavinet on Old Crow. Everything huh. else was re-recorded. So that's interesting. So there isn't some interesting fun things about Irvin Deguid. He was he was part of the live lineup of Stiltskin, which was Ray Wilson's band. I noticed it, Stiltskin oh, wow. was mentioned in in the booklet. I'm like Stiltskin. Yeah, yeah, and he also. I mean, this is just personal fun for me. He also worked in in, uh, in 2004 with Paolo Nutini, who's just a, a goofy, you know, English guy who's best known for, for at least for me, best known for his um, song, New Shoes. Oh, okay. um, Which if you've ever seen the video for New Shoes by Paolo Nutini, it's a live festival and he is rocked off his ass to the point where he can barely even speak the words to the song. Huh. Huh. And um, so anyway, that, so I, I, when I saw his name, I was like, well, who, who the hell is that guy? And there he is. Well, and, and, and it's interesting. If you look at the, at the songwriting credits, Irvin actually has six songwriting credits. Yeah. On he's around. Record. He's there a lot. I, yeah. yeah. Cause again, a lot of the, a lot of the songs were, were written before everything kind of fell apart. So the track listing actually is the field moving targets, the rookie zoo class, the lost plot, old crow numbers, exit wound, innocent party shot the craw and scattering crows still time. Field of Crows is Fish's eighth studio album since he left Marillion in 1988 and the first since Fellini Days. Released on Fish's own label, Chocolate Frog Records, retail distribution is now handled by Snapper Music. That's, uh, that's as much as the wikis have for us. Now, there are a couple of things that, generally speaking, I, I kind of wanted to, to deal with, and, and that is there's a quote in the... <laughs> in the booklet for the remaster. That's just too good to not read into the record. Uh-oh. 
keep in mind that again, this is when Fish was trying to do his his acting career, and and the actual context I don't think is is all that important. But I will read the following to you. A new press officer meant that I was racking up some nice column inches, helped in the main by the release of Nine Dead Gay Guys, a dark comedy film I'd had an acting role in the year before, and which provided me with a press shot of myself with handlebar mustache, red PVC trousers, bondage gear, and wearing a dog collar clutching a large dildo that the red top press couldn't turn down. <laughs> so, oh my. So, so put that picture into your, into your brain. <laughs> Do I have to? Oh, my gosh. Huh. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh. No. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I read that at lunch today and I was just, I was laughing out loud. I'm like, that is, is way too much. Now, the other general thing that I wanted to point out, and I can't prove it, but I, I suspect it is the case just from looking at the facts. And that is, Paul, I believe you and I and Tom have seen Van Gogh's Wheatfield with Crows, which wow. is the basic inspiration for the cover art here. And I say that because it is listed as being housed in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, which we, in fact, visited in 2007. Wait, the album cover is housed there? No, oh. the Van Gogh. Oh, the Van Gogh. Yes. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, that does make more well, sense. Well, now that you say that, I can kind of see that inspiration from there. Up until this very moment, I, I would have said that the cover was a disaster. But I see that I see what you're saying. That's cool. Well, what's really interesting about that is the whole crow motif is, is fascinating in that Fish uses the crow motif, obviously, throughout a lot of the lyrics on this record. And it has that sort of interesting cohesion to it. But if you, if you read the story that he tells, it wasn't, he, he was always going for a crow motif, but in an entirely different fashion. So fundamentally he tells the idea that he was envisioning a concept album of a young boy who was raised in the woods by his father and uncle, completely separated from society. He's raised in the woods and he's he learns all about, you know, hunting and trapping and loving nature and the whole nine yards. At some point, the um, I guess the boy's father dies and the uncle, for whatever reason, feels he can't take care of him anymore and introduces him to modern society. And I forget exactly how he does this. And the boy is horrified by what he sees. And he ends up going into the city and becoming a bit of a vigilante and starts, you know, trying to basically assassinate all these people in power that he feels are, you know, abusing the power in an effort to create um, a better society. Sounds something like Operation Mindcrime, anyone? Huh. And. And eventually, the society that he is trying to save turns the tables and ends up hunting him back out in the woods. Ooh, now, wow. now, Fish, by his own admission, says that this was a very complicated and potentially troublesome 
sort of subject matter. But what really sealed the deal was while he was thinking about this, the the sniper shootings in Washington, D.C. happened. Oh, oh my God. And Fish said, there is no way that I could make that record. Mm. Right, right, right. And And so at that point, the crow motif shifted into, you know, something more related to his own sort of, you know, personal sorrows and working through is at least how I represent, uh, interpret it. Now, that's not in every case, um, but it, it's in a lot of the cases. Now, Old Crow apparently is nothing more than a drunk guy just dancing in his own world. And, and he tells and Fish tells the story about where the whole crow motif originally came from. I guess when he was a very young, uh, a very young boy, someone near him or somehow he was involved with sheep farming, someone in the family. And when it was time for the baby sheep to be born, there was this myth, legend, whatever it was that the the crows would eat out the eyes of the baby sheep. So they would God, kill damn. crows and, and tie them to the fences around the sheep to discourage other crows from coming. It was all very, very kinds of crazy. And, and he said that was a very sort of traumatic experience for him. And so he sort of kept that. And, all of this kind of ties together when he was doing one of these SAS shows and he was in, I guess, Serbia or something to that effect. And he was taken to the site of some battle that occurred in the 1300s, whereby both sides were completely wiped out. And it, the, the literal name of the battlefield is translates to field of crows. And so all of this kind of comes together, right. In, in, in this general crow motif. And what is fascinating when he's talking about when fish is talking about Mark Wilkinson's idea for the cover, there was a, a plug-in or a, an add-on for the program painter. I don't know if anyone remembers that that was literally called Van Gogh. And so it was supposed to take mm. a digital image and Van Gogh it. And they ultimately felt that that particular program did not do an adequate job. And so Mark Wilkinson ended up painting the cover that we see. Oh, wow. Today. I'm glad it's he great, did. It's a great backstory. Yeah. So, so we apparently, Paul, we saw it because we were at the museum and uh, we saw a lot of paintings that day. We, we saw a lot of paintings that day. And if I had realized the importance of it, I would have paid more attention. But, mm. but again, if, if it's in the Van Gogh Museum and we were there in 2007, we must have seen it. Do you think it? Yeah. Well, I guess it would have been there. So that's all the that's all the backstory I got I, for this record. You know, it, it's a tremendous backstory about the painting. It's I still think it might be the worst Fish album cover to date. I'm just I'm just gonna say. Really, that. I seem to recall you weren't a big fan of Rain Gods with Zippos. I wasn't until you but, saw this. <laughs> but this one is still worse than that one. <laughs> That, like I said, that's as much lore as I have at this point. So if we want to get into it, we can start talking about the music, if that's okay. Yeah, Ooh, I, I enjoyed everything but the music. <laughs> <laughs> can we just talk about the lyrics? The lyrics aren't bad. 
Well, yeah. it's funny, Ken, because I have really not spent much time at all with the lyrics. So I'll talk about the music. You talk about the lyrics and Paul will fill in. I will I will take on the role of trying to add comic relief as <laughs> I was quite distracted with many other things. And and so I listened to this a couple of times, but basically jotted down some first impressions, which are never kind to the artist, usually. So the, the album starts out with The Field, and apparently The Field was one of the first tracks that was written for this record, and Fish had, I guess, always envisioned it opening the record. I think it's a, it's a strange sort of open. It's, it's a just completely sprawling, freeform sort of piece. It, it, it has no discernible structure, and, and but some things that sort of stuck with me, right? The the repetition of the phrase Jacob's ladder or climbing Jacob's ladder almost becomes ritualistic the way he uses it throughout, which I find, you know, there's something about that that tickles my brain. It's a very weird instrument palette, but, you know, when you have the lap steel and the sort of the cadence snare in the sort of the first third part, that I kind of very much get into. And, and one of the things that, that is really weird about this album is it, it never really goes anywhere. It musically builds a lot of tension that it then just sort of dissipates away. It never actually musically resolves anything. It just kind of, it, it's almost like it's meandering through a field. It's, it's very weird. Yeah. Um, a lot of those changes, Joe's really remind, for some reason, hearkened me back to season's end for whatever reason i don't know why some of those abrupt instrument changes and and like what seemed like random key changes but the thing that i liked about this musically was it sort of was that sort of song from nowhere which reminds me of the opening track from fellini days right that song just kind of starts and yeah you're really prepared for where it goes but the that track works a lot better than this one and for me part of it is because eh, it, it sort of you know, veers into the Renaissance fair style of, um, you know, it goes into that more like Scottish folk kind of, which, which I think I've gone on record before saying, I don't really like it when that happens. I made the, the, the joke about fish go shit kicking, but you know, his plan and he actually did it sort of, you know, a time and a half was to create a fully Scottish band here. And he did that for practical reasons because he wanted people who were close by who could, you know, be on hand for writing and everything else. Mm. Uh, not everyone in the group ended up being Scottish, but they were at least living in Scotland. So right. I think that's a genuine sort of reflection. Yes. Ken, you've got the guitar, so. I just, I God, there are so many like musical faux pas in here where I just keep saying they need Rothery Kelly Truavis to edit this shit because it just gets this progression and oh man I love the 12-8 I love in this song how we do have that Scottish waltz if you will it's just beautiful and that you say they're building tension they're always building something and it just doesn't deliver in the rock sense and it doesn't deliver in the prog sense no it's just it's just art music <laughs> <laughs> oh frustrating for all of that it's not an unpleasant listen it's just not overly motivating okay 
His vocal going quality to... is fantastic here. Well, and, and and the the vocals are are interesting, and 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 my my notes on Moving Target are mostly around the vocals because mm. I think the field is nebulous enough that it, it doesn't really bring into focus what Fish has sort of developed vocally here. But when you go to Moving Target, it really brings that into into laser focus. Mm. And that is Fish at this point has now mastered this sort of relaxed delivery that he has. If you think back to the screeching wailing monster that that gave us Fugazi, and and now you've got this this guy, right? And and moving target, the music is very aggressive, very aggressive music. And you have this chilled out fish kind of singing mm. over it. And, it, and it's not completely incongruous, but it is noticeable um, for a couple of different reasons. This song reminded me of Solange Moth from Clutching at Straws. Oh, a, a but, lot. But, but Slante is good. Yes, it is good. <laughs> it's, it is good. But the whole rep- repetition of moving target, I, I, I hearken back to that song. It was, it was, it was uh, interesting to me. It's, it's funny because later on in the record, and I hope I have it noted down, there's one of the songs later on in the record that gives me Sugar Mice vibes. But again, not on the same scale as Sugar Mice by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right exactly. But yeah, that's an interesting point, Joe, because I do think that that's part of what's happening through here is that while the production is fantastic, and, and I think you hit it great, the, the music's pretty aggressive. He does have that sort of chill delivery He's got he's got that whole sort of I don't know if it's dichotomy or if it's just, you know, purposeful contrast. It's but he's mastered it for sure. And and it'll be interesting when we get to the end of the fish catalog, because to date, I have spent relatively little time with Velchmertz. But the the beef that I have with Velchmertz in the time that I've listened to it is that fish sounds like he's recording a rock album while sitting on a rocking chair on his porch. Yeah. He just doesn't sound engaged at all. His vocal oh. range is so is so different on that record. Like he's really just given up, you know, singing. And, 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 and again, I admit that I have not spent enough time with that record. I would have said all sorts of nasty things about Fellini days if we had recorded that, you know, a month before we did. So yeah. You know, I, I, I'm curious at this point because I understand sort of my own foibles and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, I, I was listening to this the last couple of days, two things sort of waiting for that, you know, halfway through the record, that track that gets me. Yeah, that that is that, you know, that made me go, oh, that ha- it happened on both Rain Gods and Zippos and Fellini Days. And um, and I was just kind of waiting for that to happen and it never did and, and it, it's 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 just funny it, that you just triggered that when when you just said that because it never nothing really ever grabbed me with this nothing ever really stuck in that same same way the album just to me just continues to kind of thought along here's another song it's weird to me it's weird and and i felt like Gosh, I wish I would have spent more time listening to this because maybe I'm missing some gem or maybe I'm missing like, you know, my next favorite fish album. Although I don't think I am. 
I don't think I am. I'm conflicted by this record because when I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I kind of get it. It's, you know, it's not terrible, but in my mind, like before I put it in, and, and again, it's this Tormato effect in my mind is always worse in before I play it yeah. than when I actually play it. Yeah. It's good. But it's not, it's not Fellini days. It's not rain gods. It's not sunsets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, yeah, that's okay. It's not Tormato either. And, and it's not, it's not 13 star. Now when we get to 13 star, I think, you know, I'll be curious to see what you guys have to say about that. Okay. All right. Well, I've, I've got a moving target. I have a comment on moving target. So I love all the sixes and threes and the twelves in crows. I, I appreciate the Scottish influence. I, I appreciate what they bring to the table. I appreciate Bruce Watson, but that exact beat in moving targets has to be used very sparingly and very strategically. Unfortunately, I call it the candle box beat because it's the song you leathers my heart is with you by candle box. And it's, <laughs> It, 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 it's a very awesome rocking six, but it can become kind of grating to me. And just, just <sighs> fish. I find myself like, like begging him to do the right thing. Like, like, you know, okay. If you're going to say moving targets, do it three times, make it a mantra kind of like Hogarth would, but just don't say it the fourth time. Don't fuck. Don't, don't no! <laughs> Said it the fourth time it does kind of beat you down a little bit, right? You're just like, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, since you opened the door, Ken, like I'm thinking about the, the few examples where Hogarth has overdone the, the mantra thing. And, and the one that sticks in the forefront of my brain for any number of reasons today is, is Gaza. But the, the deal when, when he's doing it with Gaza is there's, there's so much sort of at stake in that song. Mm-hmm. There's so much buildup and so much emotion that you're okay with the, the overdone mantra. I think maybe, you know, following the trail that we're starting on here with Fish's chilled delivery, he doesn't get, he doesn't convince you to invest in the overdone mantra here. It just kind of annoys you. A little bit. Yeah. I am on the literal edge of my seat waiting to hear what you gentlemen have to say about the rookie <laughs> because, and, and we all know that, you know, musically speaking, I probably have the least sophisticated palate here on the, on the palaver. And while I'm very happy to accept that it may be positively terrible, awful, and annoying, there is this adolescent part of me that just kind of gets off on the organ in this song. Wow. When I first heard this song, it reminded me of, you know that that Christmas show, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas? Oh, yeah. It reminded me of the bad guy band, the River Bottom Band. Yeah, Nightmare Band. That's it, the River Bottom Nightmare Band. I am not familiar with this, so I'm interested. It reminded me of that. and. It just kind of got worse from there for me. Yeah, there's an element in the production. I don't know if it's Fish himself or if it's this Elliot Ness character, but some of this just sounds like they're making a made-for-TV canned music library. And like, oh, we need that one aggressive song. And then, you know, 
Uh, it's got to have some grinding guitar. It's got to have some Hammond B3. It's got to have some guy getting aggressive on the mic. Okay, check, check, check. Checked all the boxes. Okay, we're done. Time to make the donuts. Uh, so it, it's not it's not horrible, but there is like a stock quality to some of this stuff. And yeah, I, and, and I think we're only as critical as we are because we genuinely like fish and we know his potential when he's in the right collaborative environment. Maybe it's not entirely fair to, you know, have to evaluate this album after we've had three records, two of which were heavily influenced by Stephen Wilson and the third, which is heavily influenced by, by John Wesley. Right. Those guys know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. You know, who knows, but it, it is interesting. So, Calling out what we need to call out, especially in light of fairly recent events for one Derek Dick himself, does the chanting section of this make anyone else wildly uncomfortable? Well, I was already uncomfortable, so so maybe not so much, but I, I get your point. And again, I, I haven't honestly paid that much attention well, to the lyrics, it doesn't seem like it would be any sort of Native American caricature, but it certainly sounds like a Native American caricature. Oh, oh, I, yeah, I did hear that. And it did, it did register as something that didn't need to be there. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's just like, so I, I, I find that part to be exceptionally troublesome. Did we figure out what it's about? you big man with ambitions. You got dreams. Uh, did your booklet give you any clues? Uh, you know, honestly, Ken, the, the light in here is not good enough to allow me to to flip through it quickly. I don't recall that I got any significant insight into it. Got it. It's just another one. If, if you put this in the hands of a Mr. Stephen Rothery and said, play this guitar part, he would fuck with it until it was just genius. You know, and I mean, I mean, it it sounds really good here, but you know, there's always a little extra something you can do with it, and somewhere else you can go with it. And I mean, this is just like the demo, the raw idea that could have been something. I, I don't disagree with you. As if that's not enough. Now we have to go to zoo class. Now, what I found really funny about zoo class in the in the expanded booklet. Fish seemed to think that this was somehow going to get him radio play. Really? Yeah. Yeah. For someone of Fish's lyrical caliber, lyrically, this song is stupid. Oh, yeah. It's just stupid, which is very sad and disappointing. Well, musically, it starts off like Susie Q. You guys know that song? Yeah. 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 Um, and the beat is kind of a... Chugga, chugga, chugga. Uh, uh, reminds me of a, I think it's a Jeff Beck tune or something. Um, but um, a little comical, a little overblown. Yeah, it's not subtle. And, and there's, there's really nothing subtle about this record other than the first track. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty heavy handed. But like I said, it, musically, it's, it's fun enough. I think the guitar tones generally are rather pleasing Mm -hmm. but i I just can't get past the lyrics although i will note that this is the first lyrical mention of crows on the record Mm -hmm. i believe so we have that going for us 
And and this is one of the songs that that really for me highlights what what I'm calling the Tormato effect. Because when when I think about this album without listening to it, Zoo Class just makes my stomach kind of clench. And when I listen to it, it's not as horrible as I remember, but it's still not great. Really? Wow. Yeah. See, I listen to this and I think, yeah, maybe the big wedge wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I I I I would have to put this above the big wedge. I <laughs> But uh yeah, you know, it's it it's certainly in Circus of Heaven or Arriving UFO territory. <laughs> I found the Jeff Beck. It reminds me of Freeway Jam, which is just an instrumental 70s very wonky mm. thing. Uh, and this is just maybe a slightly faster aggressive version of Freeway Jam. What what image did you get from the lyrics? You know, sitting in class on your ass, try not to laugh, zoo class. I mean, is it a British term? I mean, I, I never heard of a zoo class. I, I, I don't know. I, I really have no clue what the hell's going on here. I just think it's not very well done. This is almost his David Lee Roth phase. It, it is kind of David Lee Roth, yes. But that's, of course, not true because isn't it Peter Gabriel who is the David Lee Roth of Prague? Uh, that one's for you, Mucho. <laughs> this whole episode is for Mucho. He should have had to been here to referee this. But he doesn't like this record. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he would have been right, no, in, he would have been right along with, with us on this. Oh, God. We, we're now four tracks in, and I don't know what the hell's going on with this album, <laughs> right? It's just like we've, we've, we've already been all over the map, and it's like, all right, great, whatever, Fish. And then he throws us a bone. I think he throws us a bone. I think Lost Plot, I, I think the piano intro is just, it's so beautiful, and all the silliness that we've heard, and now all of a sudden we get something that, maybe is more in line with our expectations a little bit, a little bit, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, this song is more aligned musically and vocally, you know, the, the rest of the band is sort of settled in to where fish has been hanging out most of the time. Anyway, it seems like lyrically, this is something that fish himself is invested in. It's not a lark. It's not a joke. And that's when Fish is at his best, when we're getting in there and we're seeing what's going on. And so this really works for me. And it's interesting the way this song is, is sort of built structurally, because that piano intro, like I said, it takes my breath away every time. It, it just sounds so beautiful. And then they end up layering it with the guitars and they repeat the intro licks, but not on piano anymore, just on regular keys. And it it's delightful the way they they bring that in. I, I just think that's great. You know, this is one of those things lyrically. The 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 mantra, if you it's not really a mantra because he doesn't say it three times in a row, but but the repetition throughout the song of the snakes and ladders, mm. the 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 vocal line he has for that is just the right amount of plaintive. And it's I, I think it's a very powerful image to sort of bring in a child's game at the same time, it clearly illustrates what he's trying to express. And, and I just, I really, really respond to that. Now, the last thing that I have here, I, I'm probably way out on a limb here, 
And it's not going to manifest itself fully until the next album, 13 Star. But there are two examples on this record, this being the first of them, where for me, Fish starts to channel late model Barry Manilow in, in a sense. Wow. Wow. Like I said, there, there are parts to this song, and it has something to do, I think, with, with the, the cadence of the vocal lines interacting with the piano is probably where I get a lot of this from. Um, and, and like I said, it, it happens again. There's another part that happens a little bit later on in the record. Um, but there's a, there's a track in 13 Star that, for me, very much is reminiscent of a very particular Barry Manilow song from later in his career. So... I think this is the highlight of, of the record. I, I was kind of hoping this was it, right? Like it happened with Rain Gods and Zippos, right? Like somewhere, I don't know, it, maybe Rites of Passage right before Plague of Ghosts start. Like I was like, ooh, okay. Like I, got, I had something to hang on to. I was like, okay. And then like the album just exploded into, into greatness. And I thought like this was, this was it. Like we turned the corner on this song. Um, it's got that extended guitar solo. So I, I think for me, this is the highlight uh, of the record. And I was really excited, um, you know, to hear the rest thinking we had turned the corner. And then uh, <laughs> and I heard uh, Pro. Uh, the end of this, there is the I am the walrus fear at the end here. We're like, oh, yeah, you're doing the big noisy chord progression over and over and over again, the big <laughs> solo. And luckily they didn't insert lots of trippy sound samples and speech and it didn't quite turn into i am the walrus but the uh i would have liked an orchestrated ending you know and, and that seems to be sort of a recurring theme here these songs don't exactly land quite quite where you want them to yeah. now some of that may have had to do with the instability in the group i don't know but but yeah paul i think you captured it perfectly right because you think you've turned the corner and then fish says Oh, no, no. <laughs> hop, hop, hopping. What? What? So Old Crow, the shit kicking is now in full effect. And the hop, hop, hopping thing is. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, I, it, I my notes simply say promising start then turns into a traveling Wilbury song. <laughs> yes, it does turn into a traveling Wilbury song. Well, you know, how is this worse than just a gigolo? So many ways. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, 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 it's a singer doing a character piece that he's no business doing in a, an, an era or a genre he's no business being in. Yes. Yeah. And it is deliberately goofy, but not in a good way. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know what this album is? It's fish whimsy. Yes. Oh my god. I don't like whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Well, wow. Now we've said it. I have no time for whimsy. I, but but again, I think this is one of those examples, right? I I think it's musically. I I think it's well done. It's it sounds good, and yeah. I like it and I hate it simultaneously. I I just it annoys me. And in a recurring theme, if we move on to the next track, Numbers, it's interesting the way that Fish constructed the lyrics here. And the song is called Numbers, and 
different numbers are used throughout the lyrics to sort of explain the situation. And it's, it's very clever. It's just not my favorite. I can't really explain why. There's just something about this song that does not sit well with me. And while I appreciate sort of lyrically what he did with the words, I don't care for the way they're delivered. I, I just, it just doesn't work. The one thing I do kind of like, I think the solo section here is kind of cool because it, if, if I recall correctly, and I didn't listen to it today, the solo section actually starts out with some sort of a, I think it's a keyboard solo. It doesn't sound like a guitar because later on it, it sounds like a guitar solo. And, and, and I kind of like the way that whole thing, you know, is, is built and it, it feels kind of intense and cool. Uh, but it just, this song is, is not my favorite. It's largely an E minor jam. I'm just wondering how much of this was just jamming and then turning it into something. Yeah. Had potential. Could have been something. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, like I said, I kind of get where he was going. I just don't really care for where he went. All right. Moving on. Yeah. Exit wound sort of, it starts with that descending pattern, which is, which kind of harkens me back to nobody home by Pink Floyd, but it sort of has yeah. more of like a wedding band, wedding, wedding band, wedding song vibe to it, you know, which I don't like. Nope. Yeah. I do think lyrically though, this, this is, I think these are good lyrics. They could, um, be, they could be good lyrics. There's a hole in my heart. The tears in the dark have dried up and gone. By the time that it takes to run through to the end of the night, through this hole in my heart, a hole in my heart. There's a space in my head, a hollow you left by my side in the bed, where I sleep in the shadows of broken dreams in a hole in my heart, the hole in my heart. The wounds may have healed, but the scars last forever. On the outside, you never could guess. There's barely a sign. But get close and you'll sense there's something wrong. Something's gone. Something's lost. Something's over. The hole in my heart. I mean, I, I, I think that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, he's close here, but not quite the same. And yeah, I think, I, I think, you know, for me, it's the vibe. It's just kind of the vibe or the atmosphere of the song. Like, I just... Because I think you're right. The lyrics, the lyrics are nice, and and, and the vocal delivery is good. But you know, uh, it's also track eight, and I'm disappointed by this point in time. And and and, and this is this is a long record. It's like 66 minutes long. Yeah. For yeah. as as whimsical and 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 inconsistent as it is. Yeah. So. He, needed, he needed just like marbles. He needed the American edit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could possibly edit this down enough um yeah you end I mean, up with an tough. ep like it's part of it's part of i mean i'd put two songs on my north american edit um i i, <laughs> I just brutal yeah i mean it's just and and again I, I like i feel bad you know sort of being like hypercritical because there is a lot of good stuff there. There's probably more good stuff here than I'm willing to allow into my head. But, you know, it's been a pretty good three three records up to this point. And this is just, 
and and I know, especially in the world of progressive, you know, rock listening, you should be open minded and you shouldn't. But it's hard for me. Like, it's just hard for me to listen to this and not be like, nah, I think I'll go listen to Fellini Days again. I don't know. Well, the next song has the sticks keyboard sound for uh, sitting on a bar stool, taking like a damn full. What's that? Too much time in my hands. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I kind of like that. Innocent party. Yeah. Yeah. You know, innocent party. I I think he he has the he, he I think he commits the same sin with innocent party that he does with moving targets. Um, I think I'm bludgeoned to death with the innocent party line, and it just wears me out. This song has it, it's got some brute force though from the get go. And, and at least Fish, I think vocally, he's a little bit more aligned with, with that than he was on, on Moving Targets. But the, I think the chorus is ultimately a huge letdown here. It, it's, almost, um, it's almost a make it easy kind of letdown. Mm. I mean, the only interesting thing I have to say about this song is the big breakdown at the end is just a fake out ending. And then they just kind of meander along for a while. So you know, take that for whatever it's worth. I don't know. I do have good feelings about shot the craw. I, I, I really like shot the craw. I mean, if, if I were, if I were creating, Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I have to comment before you guys jump on. Yeah. Yeah. Innocent party. Yeah. It, it's this minor key dirge kind of, but it's rocking. And then it gets to a major sounding type chorus that can be anticlimactic except um it kind of sounds like a psychedelic first song love my uh. word you know this one uh, i don't uh, sorry if i if i'm if i'm not nailing it but um yeah i i, I just I, I have fun with innocent party in the chorus if i think psychedelic first so maybe one of our listeners can back me up here i'll, I'll shut up shot the craw so this is the one with the interesting guitar sound. And I remember I wrote a song a long, long time ago, and I thought it was really interesting. And I had this just sort of monotonous guitar line that ran through the whole thing. And I played it through the whole damn song because I thought it was so brilliant. And I remember playing it for you, Paul, and you're like, you may want to take that out during the chorus. I'm like, no, it's cool, man. <laughs> and, and, and Fish commits the same sin here because this sort of, very weird guitar tone just never goes away mm -hmm. and you know it's not good with the big bridge sections that that jangly guitar still being in there is just incongruous to me yeah. but that's the only really bad thing i have to say about this i think this would be track two on my north american edit of field of crows and 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 shot the crawl this is where i get the sugar mice vibes mm, yes okay so I'm I'm on board with with shot the crawl, and I guess that takes us to the end of the record then with scattering crows, which I I think this is exactly what I want from fish at this point, and it's funny scattering crows is one of those songs. Again, if you think about it in the absence of listening to it, or maybe even while you're listening to it, uh, you can kind of get this impression that Scattering Crows is, is a bit epic. 
but it's only like three and a half minutes long, maybe four tops. It's it's really not as long as as you might think. But when you get the piano and the monster guitars and everything, and the visual of um, you will see me coming, I'll be scattering crows. At, Again, with fish is is able to create such a clear vision with so few words. It's you know it's one of those fish moments that you just you're like oh yeah cool. I think maybe the reason it's, it seems so long is just because it's it's the last four minutes of the sixty six minutes that you've had to sit through to get here. <laughs> there's there's general fatigue at play at this point. And there totally is. There totally is. Like. You know, like I'm like, I can't lie. By this time, I'm just listening because I feel like it's my duty. <laughs> but I mean, I I think even though there's fatigue, I mean, I I think this this sort of pays off. I think it's it's uh it's appropriate. Both keyboarders get uh, a writing credit on here. The the, the do good guy and Terrell, the guy that I guess came in afterwards. So that's quite interesting. It's it's a it's a piano heavy song, and and Watson has his usual credit. It's probably one of the best crafted songs on this album. You know, an album that's notorious for kind of repeating concepts over and over again. This actually has maybe a Marillion formula, maybe a little bit more than than most. I was just looking at the the list, Paul, and if if I were to do a North American cut, I would end up with a five song EP of this record. Okay, you would probably have two or three. <laughs> yep, <laughs> two. So Tom didn't like it probably because it wasn't Bukowski enough. It wasn't dark enough. It wasn't you know emotional enough. I imagine, and maybe the production's yeah. just too damn good. Maybe maybe Tom doesn't like whimsy any more than I do. Although. You know who knows. I, I I struggle with with trying to predict what Tom likes and what Tom doesn't like. Um, but but there's just something about this record that doesn't feel quite in line. And, and again, doing doing this the way we do it, having come out of the, you know the previous three records, I, I'm not sure it's a bad record. It's just not nearly on par with what we've just experienced from yeah. fish. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's one of those things where if if I were having a fish festival, like I used to do with my yes festivals, you know, I would play it because that would be my my chore, but I wouldn't play it as often as other records. <laughs> yeah, I, I I totally agree. That pretty much <laughs> takes us to the end. Everyone's and all there excited. There you have it. <laughs> there you have it. So we've We've reached the end of the 66 minutes of Field of Crows. <laughs> we've talked about as much lore as we've been able to dig up. So next episode, we can look forward to 13th Star. And again, I'm very curious what you gentlemen will think about that record. I have my own thoughts, and uh, we'll see where that takes us. But, you know, I, I think... This record is what it is, and it has its own sort of particular charm, such as they are. But it's, you know, it's not it's not in the top of the catalog for me. I don't think it's in the top of the catalog for you, gentlemen. But, you know, again, there is a lot more in this fish catalog than I certainly 
would have given him credit for before we started. So, yeah, here, here. I mean, I, I, I would say that that it's almost surprising that I'm sort of down on this record because the uh, the three that preceded it were so good. Because I never expected, I, I never expected to like so much of the fish catalog at on the level that I do. And I'm, I'm just being completely honest. I was foolish to think otherwise. But goodness gracious, um, my my feelings about this this record are tainted because of the greatness that preceded it, and um, and this one just falls pretty short, which we've we've noticed with just about every every artist we've covered. You have a clunker every now and then. Not a clunker, just one that's not as good as the rest. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, I think by the nature of his skill set, Fish is more susceptible to his collaborative partner's shortcomings than other people may be. Yeah, yeah. Fish is one of the few people to make Stephen Wilson sound boring in that context (laughs) of, of what you just said. You know what I mean? And it's not every song. It's not every moment, but it happens, you know, whereas, you know, Stephen Wilson will edit himself and take his own progressions and kind of avoid those pitfalls. But once you get Stephen Wilson into the fish machine, now we're just going to drag everything out. Hmm. (sighs) But Stephen Wilson is a younger lad when he works with fish on on Empire. He, Porcupine tree really hadn't blown up. So I don't know that he was this, the same person, you know, to your point, Ken, the, this, like the, the more Uber self editor at that, oh, at that okay. point in time. Fair enough. And, 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 you know, we talked about in the context, right? The, the first Blackfield album comes out. I don't know where Insurgentes or Grace for Drowning are. I think they were well after the fact, but, but even at that late stage, and, and certainly with the the first Blackfield album or two, those are pretty sparse. Mm. Uh, it, it's not, it, you know, it's not the the very complex textures that that Stephen will bring for Hand Cannot Erase and and Raven and and things like that. So right. so yeah, I mean Stephen Wilson, I think he was still becoming Stephen Wilson at at. At that point, certainly yeah. when he was working on Rain Gods and Sunsets. But, you know, it, um, I'm, I have no regrets that we covered this record. It, mm-hmm. it was better than I was afraid it was going to be, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's, it is what it is. We will get through and finish up our combined Fish and Peter Gabriel segment. Then we have some really fun stuff to talk yeah. about. All right. So until next time, gentlemen, um, when we talk about 13 Star, I thank you for your time as always and look forward to next episode. hope you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on instagram facebook or twitter we are at Prague Pala on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is Prague Pala that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com 
Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.